Father, we praise You. We praise You for who You are, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We praise You for what You have done, things that we don't even know, the ones that we do bring praise and we want to give glory and honor to You for all that, all that You've done in our behalf, raising Jesus Christ from the dead, giving us life through His name. We stand in amazement. So, Father, as we look into Your Word today, may we, may we have hearts that are tender and not of stone. May we be open to You for what You have for us, that we might know what You have uh, for us to live lives worthy of Your calling. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So, it's uh, 35 years ago, just this next week, on August the 6th, when uh, Barbara and I celebrated our ninth wedding anniversary. And so, we were serving a pastoral internship in Simcoe, Ontario, in, in Canada, and it was a very small place. We were trying to figure out, well, what, what do we do? We decided, well, we'll find a dinner somewhere, and we, and we were able to. I think we drove down towards Toronto and, and taken a movie, but the, the movie theater was quite small, but there only had uh, two movies, as I recall. Uh, one of them was, was uh, Back to the Future. It was a, a new film. And so, I, I, you know, the very name kind of conjured up uh, time travel and adventure and all this and that. And today, if you go and you, you look at the IMBD, which is the, uh, the Internet uh, Movie Database, they rate it uh, the number two time travel movie of all time, second only to The Time Machine uh, by H.G. Wells. And so uh, we went there and we watched it. In the opening credits, I thought, oh, boy, we're in trouble. If you have seen or heard at all of this, it's just a bunch of clocks ticking and going off and all that. It's kind of a miserable sound, really. But as it goes across, you'll see that there is one clock, and on that clock, it's a drawing from the silent movie entitled Safety Last. Now, you may never have seen any silent movies in your life, but you have no doubt seen a picture of this where stuntman Harold Lloyd is dangling from a clock hand above traffic in New York City. I mean, just that's totally insane. Safety last was, was not a, a, a misnomer. And, and that bit of genius that Steven Spielberg has carried it all the way through because in seeing that, you understand that at some point in the movie, someone is going to be dangling from a clock. And so you see this, and that's what's known in literature as a prolepsis. Okay, John, that's a big word, and this is not a grammar class. This is a sermon, but get on with it. So it comes from a Greek word that, may, that means to take beforehand. That is to anticipate, to apprehend something uh, more accurately, or more descriptively, I should say, is to take something that is anticipated as already existing or as already done. 
So even though you may have never heard that word before, the Bible is filled with these statements. So, for example, right at the very beginning, uh, when uh, God created woman, it says that Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. No, really. I mean, there were only two people, Adam and Eve. However, this is what's known as a prolepsis. And what Moses was doing in the writing was telling all of us what our relationship to her is. And in that, he revealed her relationship to all uh, humanity. So as with time travel, prolepsis can be kind of strange because it can be used as a literary device in the future about an event in the past to tell us something about the future. So talk about back to the future. That's the way that works. The best way to understand it, the thing that comes closest to our understanding is how we understand prophecy. So prophecy is forthtelling or foretelling. So a prolepsis is foretelling in the present time as an accomplished fact. So this is how we can be seated. You know this, right? You have been seated in the heavenlies. <laughs> Tell that to my body. Yeah, that's how you can be positionally there and yet be remaining here on earth. And so why did I even want to talk about that at all? It's because there's no other way to understand our text today without understanding that concept. So turn with me to the book of Revelation in uh, chapter 14. We'll only look at verses 1 through 5, but you'll see that it will take our entire time and we still will not get through all of it. Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, we begin to see a change in uh, the revelation that John was receiving. He says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. The first thing to note about this text at all is it, you'll see this one word fairly often. And I looked, then I looked, I looked, I looked. But rarer is the second word. We've seen it already a few times in the book of Revelation. I looked and behold, there's something extraordinary that the Holy Spirit wants to draw our attention to. And as we get to this vision of the Lamb on Mount Zion with the 144,000, what I'd like for you to do is to, for a moment, 
Put your minds in the minds as listeners hearing this story for the very first time. We have 2,000 years of history behind us. We all know this. We've all read this. But when the readers, or when, more accurately, when the listeners were hearing this the first time, they, they were sick to their heart as to what was being spoken. It reminds me, actually, of The Princess Bride, another reference here, these kind of cult classic uh, movies, when the young boy is listening to the story and uh, Peter Falk, who's the grandfather, is, is reading the story to him. And one of the lines was that Fezzik said that Wesley was dead. And, and the grandson says, wait, what, do you, what did Fezzik mean? He's dead. He's not dead. He's only faking, right? And, uh, you know, the grandfather says, do you want me to read this or not? And, and the grandson says, well, who gets Humperdinck at the end? I mean, somebody's got to do it. Is it an ego? Who kills him? Somebody's got to kill him. And the grandfather says, nobody. Nobody kills Humperdinck. Humperdinck lives. You mean he wins? <laughs> what did you read me this thing for? I mean, the grandson at that point is so sickened by what he's hearing that he's wondering why he has to listen to it in the first place. That's the way these people felt. I mean, we've gone through chapter 12. We've gone through chapter 13. Satan is running wild. And, he, and the grandson in listening to the princess bride is sensing that justice will not be done. They were sick. Why are you telling this? Satan is running amok. amok. The forces of good are on the run. I mean, even we ask ourselves, is COVID going to reign? Are radicals going to win control of the government? Are schools, we don't even know if schools are even going to start. Are we going to be safe in our own homes? Are our churches in danger? Are we going to be able to continue to sing? As a congregation. How about our livelihoods? What's going to happen to us? Satan is winning. But then John gives, or I should say, Christ gives this vision to John. And it's a prolepsis. It hasn't happened yet. But it's spoken of as if it's happening right now. Because he knows that John, he knows that the listeners, he knows that we need in some way to be comforted. We need to know what's happening here. And so it takes us back to Revelation chapter 5. Do you remember when John in chapter 5 looked around and he was trying to see if there was anyone worthy to, to open the scroll? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone worthy to open the scroll? And he looked around and there was none. And he began to weep. I don't like that word. <laughs> weep in English means oh, a little teardrop came down and maybe a little sniffle. He was wailing. 
He was beside himself. There is no one to open the scroll. And remember the elder. An elder touched him on the shoulder. And he said, fear not. Because the Lion of Judah, the root of Jesse, has come. He has conquered so he can open the scroll. And he turned around to see the Lion of Judah. And what did he see? He saw a lamb. A lamb as though he had been slain standing there. Let me tell you something. And I want to be very clear about this. No matter what our fears are. And and, uh, all you have to do is look at the pharmaceuticals in the area of depression and anxiety that have gone up over 20% in the course of just one month. That's a lot. We're suffering as I think the world is suffering. And we always are to one degree or another. This is more corporate than than usual, but Satan is not winning. Satan is not winning. In fact, he has, proleptically speaking, already lost. The Lamb of God has seen to it, and for a time he can still cause us pain, but that time is limited because the fact is the Lamb is standing on Zion, the Lamb that was slain, Standing there. Jesus is here. Here. With us this morning. And John comforts us by showing us that in contrast to the Antichrist kingdom. That Satan is running rampant. I mean, just look at this. I want you to, when you look at Revelation 14, we think of Revelation 14. No Old Testament or New Testament early church saint ever thought about Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14 did not exist. All those chapters and all those verses are a later edition. Bishop Usher did it. I don't know when he did it, in the 1500s or something, right? What you need to understand is that the last sentence that we read... Last time was that there were people who had received the mark of the beast on their forehead or their hand 666. The very next sentence in the original reads that there are 144,000 with the lamb on Mount Zion with the name of Christ. And God on their foreheads. You have to get this contrast here. Does Satan win? No, he does not win. Can he cause trouble? Yeah, you bet he can. But not forever. I mean, the last two chapters that we've read were designed there to prepare the tribulation saints for what was going to happen to them. They were going to be persecuted. They were going to be sacrificed like sheep. They were going to be hunted down and murdered and killed. But what we see in 14 here is that that sacrifice would not be in vain. This chapter answers two important questions. One, what happens to those who refuse the mark of the beast? And that's we'll 
uh, not going to be looking at all of uh, these uh, things, but because we've divided 14 up because it's so packed. But nevertheless, we're going to see in the weeks to come also what happens to the beast and to those servants who had the mark put on uh, their heads. So, in fact, this the entirety of this chapter is proleptic. That is, it's a statement in the midst of the horrible pain that is then going on about a future event as if, or not even as if, as it were occurring at that very moment. By sharing the ultimate triumph of those who refuse the mark of the beast and understanding the doom of those who do, John is simply reminding people how to get through hard times. Now, in that case, it's very specific, difficult, hard times. But, you know, the tribulation, uh, there is nothing more that can be done then than has not already been done. I hope you understand that. Physiology is physiology. You can only be harmed in just so many ways. The difference here is that this is coming from God as a... uh, as a judgment on the earth. And it's coming on all of the earth. Let me tell you right now, and some of you know it, with all your heart, you can experience tribulation. I'm not spiritualizing this book out. Don't, un- don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying that we are not exempt from extraordinarily hard Times, extraordinarily difficult times. In fact, I was, I've been so distressed uh, just by turning on the news. It kind of just sickens me when I turn on the news. And even though I realize that most of it is deliberate uh, misrepresentation or lies, it doesn't matter, it still has this impact on me. I I actually thought about changing my message today and such that the last time that I ever changed a message was on 9-11. I don't change messages. But I wanted to preach on Habakkuk. I wanted to preach on the question, why is evil prevailing? And why does it seem that God is silent? That's what Habakkuk is about. And so Habakkuk asks this question and God says to him, he says, you know what, I'm going to do some stuff that even if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. One of the things that he actually did tell him was that all Israel's enemies, all those superpowers out there, and there were a bunch of them, right? They were all going to go into the dustbin. They were all going to be defeated, but there was a problem that Habakkuk had. And that was that before that happened, Babylon was going to run through Israel like dust and destroy the land. I want you to hear what Habakkuk said. And don't think of this as hyperbole. Don't think of this as some kind of statement of the heart. Think of this as reality. When he says this, though the fig tree should not blossom, 
nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, in other words, total devastation. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. Habakkuk asked a simple question. How shall we live through these horrors? We need to ask the same question. This is the same question that the tribulation saints are asking. How shall we live through these horrors? And you all know the answer, even if you don't know the answer. It's found in Romans. But it's also found in Habakkuk 2.4, who Paul quotes, The just or the righteous shall live by faith. There's nothing different. We live by faith. We live by faith in the one who gave himself for us so that we might live. So I chose to stay with Revelation 14 because what do we see here? We see the lamb that was slain standing victorious on Mount Zion. We live by faith in the lamb. Now we've argued that Jesus will take the church to be with him before this whole seven-year period of the tribulation begins. It's something that Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what we call the, the rapture. And he ends that uh, with, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, part of our difficulty when we start thinking about what in the world does that mean, being with the Lord, is a lot of us think about, Heaven. And somehow or another, culturally, we've got in our mind angels and clouds and harps and things like that floating around out there. If we're a little more adventurous, we're floating out in the uh, universe somewhere, you know, maybe some solar system or some galaxy or something along those lines. And as part of God's creation, I actually hope that's true. I think. That would be kind of cool to be able to cruise around some of those areas of God's, uh, God's creation. But what we have a much harder time understanding is this, is that heaven can be right here on earth as well. In fact, in fact, heaven will be on earth in the end. And what we'll see is that heaven is... It is a location, but it's a space defined by a relationship. In 2003, uh, when I was stationed at Yakota, Barbara and I were there, and President Bill Clinton, a couple of times, he uh, came through on Air Force One. That's a majestic aircraft. I'm just telling you, that's, it's so beautifully painted. It's just a wonderful, magnificent aircraft. But the crew of Air Force One are on alert. They're just on alert, always. And so they have special means of telling them when they need to get back to that airplane. And so uh, in, at Yakota, we had what was called a, a klaxon system. 
which is bells and whistles and lights that uh, if that thing goes off, they, you know, they head, they head straight to, uh, straight to the aircraft, uh, uh, no, matter, no matter where or when. Wherever Air Force One is, a klaxon or some system like that is, is there also. And so while uh, President Clinton was talking, I don't, I don't know what he was doing there, but somewhere in uh, Tokyo, I was conducting a wedding. And the uh, National Airborne Operations Center decided that, well, we haven't been to Yokota in a while, so let's test the klaxon system. <laughs> and so they did. Flashing lights and sounding horns, and needless to say, it was uh, sort of interrupted. Later, the, the crew found out about the wedding, and they went, uh, oops. And so they, they dropped by the chapel, and they left me this uh, coin. It's uh, Air Force One in the night sky, and uh, I thought that was great. But here's the thing. Air Force One is not a specific plane. You would be mistaken if you saw that plane sitting on the tarmac and said it was Air Force One. We all do, but that's not what it is. Air Force One is what traffic control uses for any aircraft, Air Force aircraft, that the president is on. So that's why, have you heard Marine One? Why is it called Marine One? Is that the name of the helicopter? No. Marine One is Marine One because the president is on it. In other words, the designation One comes with the president. In the same way, or said differently, where the president is, Air Force One is. Where heaven is, God is. It's, it's, a, simple, it's a simple understanding. God is what makes some place heaven, not some created place. Even though there is a created place, that's not what makes it heaven. What makes it heaven is the presence of God. And in fact, heaven has already been on earth. Jesus said in Luke 17, 20 through 21, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he said the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that you can observe, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. <laughs> now, some have misunderstood this, and they've said, they translate that, some of your Bibles out there will say, within you. That's not what it says. It's not what it says. Jesus Christ certainly is within us. Kingdom is not. Not that, no. What he was saying was, is that where I am, the kingdom is. He was talking about himself. The kingdom of heaven is where Jesus is. I mean, and it's certainly true. We have this understanding in a, a kind of an already and already we, we feel it, we understand it, we sense it, but not yet. You know, I mean, we see all the pain in the world around us where we see that not yet part, but we do see the already. In this world, there is joy. In this world, there is healing. There is redemption and reconciliation. There is worship and prayer and singing. There is rest for those who choose to take it in the presence of God. 
So while we have a few minutes left, let me talk about these 144,000. We're told five things about them. I'm only going to talk about two. First, there is a new song that only they can learn, which they hear from heaven. They hear a great group singing uh, the song of the redeemed. And we're not told who, who sings, but they are identified as a group. They, I mean, they're actually identified with a pronoun. And they sang a new song before the throne, before the living creatures and the elders. Who are they? Well, we do know a couple of things just from the text. We know it's not the elders, right? We know it's not the living creatures. W says it right there. And we know it's not God. Before the throne, they're singing this song to the 144,000 are listening. Was it the angels singing? I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. I mean, it says no one can learn it, but I'll tell you why I don't think it was the angels. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it says this. It was revealed to them that they were served, not the angels, but they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long. They have a longing to look. In other words, angels don't know. They don't understand what God is doing. They do not understand the gospel. That's what's being said here, that the Good news preached to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The angels don't understand. They long to look into this. They observe. They obey. They are righteous, but they do not comprehend redemption. They are manifestly curious about it. You know who understands redemption? Only the redeemed. Let me tell you. If Christ gave you sight, if you were lost and Christ found you, if you were dead in your sins and Christ forgave you as much as you desire to, you cannot transfer that to anyone else. You can't even explain it. That people will look at you like you're crazy. Like you had some sort of, I don't know, something mental happen to you. It's something. But if you say those things to someone who's redeemed, you know what they'll say? They'll say, Amen. Because they know, they understand, they feel it. This redemption song is something that only belongs to the company of the redeemed. I believe the singers are us. I believe that those taken into glory will teach the 144,000 the song of the redeemed, because it's a song that only the redeemed can sing, like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peal of thunder. But it's sweet. It's like the harpists playing their harps. Surely what the 144,000 are hearing is none other than the bride of Christ from heaven. Henry David Thoreau once said, if a man does not keep up with his companions, Perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Here are 144,000 men who listen 
to the drumbeat of heaven, they can learn the song of the redeemed because they know redemption. The second, we have this, uh, another thing that I wanted to address. We're told that they kept themselves unto the Lord only. Uh, They were separated unto him. The phrase is, they did not defile themselves with women. Upon uh, first reading, one might get upset. And so I asked, I I set that aside for just a second. Okay. But defile? I mean, that sounds awful. Is that, and I, I don't mean that word in the, in the true sense of what the word is supposed to mean. Let me say it's terrible. That's a horrible sounding word. But we need to remember a couple things. The first thing remember that this is during the tribulation. What is happening during the tribulation? The tribulation is not about the church. The tribulation is about God fulfilling his promises to Israel. So we have to understand a, a sort of a, an Israelitish understanding of what's being said here. So there is a certain understanding about the law. There's a certain understanding about the way things work in this kingdom economy, certainly from an Old Testament perspective. So let me tell you something right now. If you touch a ladybug, mm, defiled. Did you know that? You know that? Ladybug. If you touch a rabbit, oop, defiled. Camel, raven, owl, pelican, defiled. If a fly lands on you, defiled. It, it's got nothing to do, it's, got, it, it, it's, not what it, it's not what we hear in our English words. All it simply means is you need to wash your hands before you go into the temple. Because you're now ceremonially unclean, Okay? That's all it means. But, you know, you say, okay, but hey, didn't Paul advise young men not to marry? I I actually wrestled with that when I was when I was younger. I was considering marrying Barb and how that was going to look, you know, and oh, my goodness, you know. And then someone said, you need to read what Paul actually said. He said, in view of the present time. So what he was talking about in a time of chaos and disorder, that's not the time to establish a household. And we know for a fact that this isn't any kind of a negative uh, reference to sex because God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply twice, once before the fall and then once after the fall. This statement is not chauvinistic, it's not misogynistic, it just means they were celibate. Which probably also means they were, uh, you know, young, young men uh, who had to be able to face the travails like the army. It's a young man's game. It's hard. It's a difficult uh, life. It's not a put down of marriage. It's not a put down of sex. In the simplest terms, it means that for those men to marry would have been against the will of God for them. This is something, that, and that's all it means. They were separated in the Lord, just like uh, Paul was. Anyone reading uh, 12 and 13, not just could, should become a little bit discouraged. And so the feeling that I had about this whole thing was, the notion of discouragement and and has is 
I mean, think about this. Is discouragement taking a foothold in your life? Or for some, maybe even discouragement has taken more than that. Maybe it's beginning to consume your life. Revelation 12 and 13 could lead to that. Revelation 14 offers the the anecdote. The Lord is on His throne. In the mid-1800s, Bishop Samuel Gobat of Jerusalem, he went on a long missionary journey. So this was back when it was hard to get around, right? It's hard to get around in some places today, but it was hard to get around in the middle of the 1800s in, in Israel. And he came back, he was so discouraged that he felt that God had forsaken him. And so he found a cave and he went into it and he began to complain, very much like Elijah and some of these other guys, you know, God, why have you discouraged me? Why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? It was a very dark cave. (laughs) And as his eyes began to adjust, he noted that he had a companion in the cave. There's something among us. (laughs) That something among us was Aina and her cubs. Now, I don't know if you've ever witnessed what a hyena is capable of doing, but just let me tell you, a man is no match for a hyena. And the thing never even moved towards him. And so he just kind of said, okay, and he let himself out of the the cave. And here's the irony of that. The very hour that he was convinced that God had forsaken him, God was in fact protecting him from things that he didn't even know about, from things he was completely unaware of, unseen dangers. On a tiny new gravestone that was put up after an air raid on Britain during World War II, someone wrote this inscription, There is not enough darkness in all the world to put out the light of one small candle. So we're not looking at a small candle. We're looking at a blazing bonfire on Zion. See the victorious Lamb standing there. He has promised never to leave or forsake you. We even looked at that in Romans 8 this morning as a way of bookends. God saying He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. In the midst of the darkest times, He is there. He did not abandon, will not abandon the 144,000. He will not abandon you. Father, we are so grateful for who you are. Our hearts are overwhelmed by your presence. And the fact that we are safe in your arms, we are safe. And you watch over us even when we have no awareness of the need. When we sleep, you are there. You do not sleep, you do not slumber, you give peace. We thank you through Christ our Lord. Amen.